Hail and welcome to A is for Agrimony, coffee-stained notes on witchcraft. I am Margot, and I want to wish you all a happy Friday. I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day or Lupercalia if you observe either of those celebrations. And some of you may be looking ahead to the new moon in Pisces coming on Monday the 20th at 2.06 a.m. Eastern Time. The sun will enter into watery Pisces tomorrow, that's Saturday, February 18th at 5.34 p.m. Eastern Time, while the moon positions itself in Aquarius until it too enters into Pisces on Sunday, 11.56 p.m., just in time to meet the sun on the new moon on Monday. As we know, the moon is always in the same sign as the sun during the new moon, and then in the opposite sign of the sun during the full moon. So both the sun and moon in the watery sign of Pisces on a Monday that is also ruled by the moon, which is ruled by water, can feel especially emotionally charged on Monday um, and have intense magical events happening for some of us, especially since this new moon in Pisces seeks to challenge us to cast our fears aside in order to chase our deepest dreams and desires. Of course, this can be scary. But this alignment says, be afraid and do it anyway. Remember, water teaches us to dare. So this is a great time to recommit to personal goals, to accept our imperfections and truly embrace ourselves with unconditional love. Start that project that until now has only been living in our imagination. Put aside some time for rest and rejuvenation. If you've been feeling pulled in too many directions or worn down, Water is also a soothing healer. These are all important shifts and changes that we can make in our lives with the full support of the sun and the moon in deeply spiritual and imaginative Pisces. Remember, all the major bodies are direct as well, so that forward trajectory is something to take advantage of for sure. So, the moon... When we start our education in witchcraft, paganism, folk magic, sorcery, etc., many of us learn straight on how to work with the different phases of the moon in order to enhance our magic, tell time, and learn to flow with the cycles of nature. It is easily one of the most popular subjects in your Witchcraft 101 curriculum, and for this reason I wasn't sure if I wanted to cover it, not because it isn't extremely important and entirely fascinating, but because I worried that my listeners would already have extensive knowledge of the subject and therefore find no interest in this episode. But when I remembered that moon magic has an extensive and incredibly engrossing history and goes much deeper than simply telling when to perform certain spells, which I will still cover later in this episode, of course, and this still being a brand new podcast, I would be remiss to skip it. So let's dive in. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, moon worship is defined as adoration or veneration of the moon, a deity of the moon, or a personification or symbol of the moon. The sacredness of the moon has been connected with the basic rhythms of life and the universe, a widespread phenomenon appearing in various eras and cultures. Moon worship has engendered a rich symbolism and mythology. The moon is viewed in terms of the rhythmic life of the cosmos and is believed to govern all vital change. The cyclical process of disappearance and appearance of the moon is the basis of the widespread association of the moon with the land of the dead. 
the place to which souls ascend after death, and the power of rebirth. The lunar governance of this cycle likewise leads to association of the moon and fate. Not bad, Britannica. Uh, The following paragraphs left a lot to be desired, so I'll stop there. Modern witches and pagans do in fact associate the moon by way of its phases with the process of life, death, and rebirth. And some attribute these cycles to the aspects of a deity known as the triple goddess who appears to us in the form of a maiden, a mother, and a crone. Three phases of life that seem to define the stages of a woman's life, though somewhat recently there has been some discourse on whether or not the mother phase should define a woman or person of childbearing age when many go through life without giving birth. Therefore, many prefer this aspect to be looked upon as the powerful creator of their own fate, or possibly a warrior instead. In some Wiccan paths, there is also a triple god known as the inseminator, provider, and sage. I don't love the term inseminator, and as an adult woman with no children, I can see why the term mother can feel a bit exclusive. So I like to think of that mother aspect as a combination of a fierce warrior and the empress from the tarot, whose fertility and gift of creation is more about her ability to realize ideas and create abundance all around her, the great creator and powerful weaver of her own fate. But this particular conversation could go on forever, and I love that we can see to it that our beliefs and principles evolve along with our own growth as a society, and I personally would love to see an updated representation of the triple goddess on this front, but I still respect those who hold the traditional depiction of her dear to their hearts. So let's talk about moon worship and veneration through the ages. The moon's influence on this earth we call home is profound and nearly impossible to cover in a short amount of time. It affects the tides of our oceans, it helps stabilize the orbit of our planet, However, its influence doesn't end with gravitational force, but extends into the complex thoughts and the vast and varied cultures of the people living on this world since the dawn of human beings. Let's jump ahead from the cradle of humankind in Africa to the northeastern region of the continent and look at ancient Egypt. Based on evidence available, the moon was never as important to ancient Egyptians as the sun, though it was considered by them to be the nightly replacement of the sun. Within all of the known creation accounts, the sun is always paramount. However, in the relationship between the moon and the stars, the lunar god can be designated as the ruler of the stars. In my reading, I came across several deities associated with the moon, but five major names tended to stick out. So, in ancient Egypt, Khonsu was the ancient Egyptian god of the moon. His worshippers were primarily from Thebes. His symbol was the crescent moon. And due to his name meaning traveler, which may relate to the perceived nightly travel of the moon across the sky, he was believed to be the protector of those traveling, particularly at night. Ancient Egyptian mythology was incredibly complex and would either add in new gods or shift them around with political changes. So it isn't surprising that there was another popular moon god worshipped within the empire, Thoth. He, along with Khonsu, marked the passage of time, but was much more strongly associated with wisdom, writing, hieroglyphs, science, magic, art, judgment, and death, both being a god of wisdom and a god who would guide spirits through the underworld. 
During the Middle Kingdom, funerary beliefs were especially concerned with the night sky, even though lunar associations were not common during that period. However, the coffin texts of Deir al-Bershah nevertheless accord an equal place in the afterworld to the lunar god Thoth, next to Osiris and Re. During the New Kingdom and later, the role of the moon in the afterlife remains rare, but is found, for instance, in chapter 131 of the Book of the Dead. This brings me to the third major deity associated with the moon. Again, there are many. These just seem to be the most prominent. It is extremely difficult to sum up ancient Egyptian culture when you consider that ancient Egypt had archaeologists that studied ancient Egypt. (laughs) That's how much time we're talking about here. So I'm barely scratching at the surface, but I'm doing my best. So the third, this was Osiris god of fertility, agriculture, and the afterlife, the dead, resurrection, life, and vegetation in ancient Egyptian religion, who may have only become identified with the moon as of the new kingdom. The murder of the god Osiris and his resurrection were recognized in the lunar cycle, and the body of Osiris was equated with the moon. In this myth, Osiris's body was cut into 14 parts by Set, which were later reassembled and restored to life. And so Osiris is linked to the moon because as the moon changes from crescent to full month after month, it recalls Osiris's continual rebirth and regeneration. The fourth, of course, is his wife, Isis, uh, probably one of the most famous and celebrated of all ancient Egyptian deities. Isis was the Egyptian goddess of love, healing, fertility, magic, and in later periods of her worship, the moon. Egyptians also called her Aset or Eset, and over time she was the most worshipped goddess in all Egyptian culture. Such was her influence, the Egyptian goddess Isis continued to be worshipped during the Greek rule of ancient Egypt. This Isis-Moon connection first started when Egypt came under Greek rule in the 3rd century BCE, following the conquest by Alexander the Great. To ancient Greeks, goddesses were lunar deities, so although Isis had heavy solar associations in Egypt, as she made her way into Greek culture and Greek hearts, her new devotees naturally began associating her with the moon. The fifth deity, uh, known as either the brother to or the son of Isis and Osiris, depending on whether you are referring to the elder or the younger, is Horus. Said to be the sky, he was considered to also contain the sun and moon. Many Egyptians believed that his right eye was the sun or the morning star, representing power and quintessence, and his left eye was the moon or evening star, representing healing, and that they traversed the sky when he, a falcon, flew across it. Unlike Isis, who kept her name after the Greek conquest, Horus the Younger was transformed into the Greek god Harpocrates after Alexander the Great conquered Egypt in 331 BCE. And speaking of ancient Greece, we come to Selene, her name which literally means moon in Greek. She is the personification of the moon as a goddess and was worshipped at both the new and full moons in ancient Greece. Selene was revered by the ancients in a similar way as the sun was worshipped and respected. Greek mythology places her as the daughter of the titans Hyperion and Thea, being the sister of the sun god Helios and Eos, the goddess of dawn. 
In Greek mythology, Selene is said to have shown her magnificent silver light down from her ethereal chariot, which was carried by two magnificent white horses that helped her traverse the heavens at night, much in the way that Helios rode through the bright sky in daylight hours. Usually depicted with a crescent moon headdress, which often resembled horns, Selene, together with Artemis, the Olympian goddess of wild animals, the hunt and vegetation, and of chastity and childbirth, and Hecate, the torch-bearing titan goddess of magic, witchcraft, the night, moon, ghosts, and necromancy, with power over heaven, earth, and sea, were all considered to be divinities associated with the moon. Their Roman equivalents were Luna, Diana, and Trivia, though Hecate in particular is known by many names. However, in ancient Greece, Selene was the sole absolute moon incarnate, the ultimate embodiment and the total personification of the moon as we know it today. Unlike other Greek gods and goddesses, Selene did not have dedicated temple sites due to the fact that she could be seen and worshipped from almost anywhere, even in the day. Some writings have suggested that she was mostly called upon for guidance during two of her phases, during the Numenia, or the New Moon, and the Dicomenia, or the Full Moon Festivals. Ways of honoring her included gazing upon her grandness, offering libations, and reciting hymns, very much like what we do today. The ancient Greeks took veneration of the moon very seriously. And I want to add here that that a philosopher by the name of Anaxagoras was exiled for claiming that the moon was just a rock and not a god. Although he was not the first, he may have been a victim of bad timing, for political factions were hostile at the time, and some conspired against the trailblazing thinker and his claims that the moon was no more than a rock and the sun a burning rock, which got him labeled as a chief denier of the idea that the moon and sun were deities, and so he was arrested and exiled. (laughs) Um, There is actually a crater close to the North Pole of the moon that is named after him now. So, moving forward in time, Frederico Maland, a co-director of an Italian archaeological project at Harkarkum, and Angelina Magnata, president of the Archeo Club Italy, write about the moon cult in early Europe. In their editorial, they say that the cult of the lunar deity spread in a vast geographic area in Europe and Asia during the Bronze Age and through the Iron Age. The moon was worshipped for the strict analogy between the moon cycle and the life cycle. In fact, the cycle of the crescent, full, weaning, and new moon was a symbol of life from birth, infancy, adulthood, old age, until death. The crescent occurring after the new moon was a symbol of life after death. Although no proof exists in the origin of this cult during prehistory, we believe that it would have started very early after the Neolithic Revolution. In fact, life beyond death is at the basis of all modern religions, and it would have been the central belief since the origin of Homo sapiens. Furthermore, worshipping the moon as the protector of fertility would have started very early in societies with economies based on animal breeding and architecture. Nevertheless, there is evidence that the cult was present in different forms for different populations and geographic areas. Megalithic temples in Malta prove that during the late Neolithic and early Bronze Ages, there was a cult of the Great Mother, and Malta was a point of reference in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea for ancient sailors. 
the cult of the Great Mother spread all over Europe with the circulation of megaliths, and the Great Mother Goddess remained the supernatural entity of reference for fertility. At the beginning, the Great Mother was Gia for Earth, and later on, she was identified with the moon. In the prehistory of Europe, the moon was always considered the feminine symbol par excellence as the fertility goddess who presided over birth and lit the night of the unborn. It was worshipped by tribal societies in prehistory as well as by historic people who handed down their knowledge in classical culture so that it was included in the wisdom and literature of holy texts. And documentation of that in prehistoric times consists of engravings and carvings dedicated to the moon in various parts of the European continent. Moving over to our continent, ancient history is that of the indigenous peoples. But you may know a little bit more about some Native American views of the moon than you think, as the names for the monthly moons, which can be found in the almanac or on many calendars, are almost all derived from names given to them by various Native groups. Perhaps, for many listeners, some lesser-known names for the February moon, according to Western Washington University, include, and without my butchering any of these unique and beautiful languages, I will share just their translated meanings, the bony moon, or hungry moon, as called by the Cherokee of the East Coast and Carolinas, the makes branches fall in pieces moon, named by the Abenaki of Northeast Maine, The Ice in River is Gone Moon, named by the Algonquin of the Northeast to Great Lakes. The Sucker Moon, named by the Chippewa or Ojibwe of the Great Lakes. The Big Moon of Famine in early February by the Choctaw of Southeast Mississippi and Louisiana. And the Moon of Winds for late February to early March, also by the Choctaw. The Sleep Moon is a name given by the Comanche of the Southern Plains, the Old Moon by the Cree of the Northern Plains, Canada, the Moon of Purification and Renewal by the Hopi of Southwest Arizona, the Crow Moon of the Shawnee, Midwest Ohio and Pennsylvania, and the Moon of the Cedar Dust Wind by the Pueblo of Southwest New Mexico. These are just a few of many, and if you feel so inclined, I can assure you that it is very interesting to look into them and see them in their own languages as well. Uh, Most modern pagans refer to the February moon by other adopted names, the snow moon, storm moon, or hunger moon. Tainos, the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean and Bahamian islands who were the first non-European people encountered by Christopher Columbus on Boriquen, or what is now known as the island of Puerto Rico, also have a moon goddess. Not to be confused with Atabe, the great mother goddess of the Tainos and all their gods. The moon goddess is sometimes referred to as Diosa Luna and is said to reside in a cave of the country chieftain Mariata Biol son of dawn or lord of the dawn. Both the sun and the moon were born in this cave. It was believed that the moon rises from the cave Mariatabule at dusk, only to return when the sun rises. There is enough moon worship and moon lore and mythology to fill much more than one of my episodes, all endlessly fascinating. But let's move on to modern moon worship, magic, and mythology from Reconstructionist and Neo-Pagan viewpoints. 
Like our ancestors lived with the seasons and the cycles of the moon for centuries and worshiped the moon and or its deities associated with it in an amiable exchange for good fortune, successful harvest, and fertility, among many other things, many modern witches, pagans, and folk practitioners do the same today. Many of the same deities are still venerated, just to name a few, Artemis, Curidwen, Diana, Freya, Hecate, Hermes, Horus, Ishtar, Isis, Juno, Janus, Khonshu, Luna, Nana, Rhiannon, Selene, Spider-Woman, Thoth, and the Triple Goddess. We celebrate the moon's fullness and most potent power with full moon rites, and we set intentions and hold suppers or offerings on new moon celebrations. We attract love, abundance, and luck to us during the waxing moons, and we banish harmful energies or work to reduce our troubles by the waning moon. Some of us honor the moon even further every Monday, the day of the week that is ruled by the moon. In astrology, the moon possesses a divine feminine energy and is responsible for our innermost emotional state. For this reason, our moon sign is considered the zodiacal sign that explains how we feel and tends to describe our emotional life, desires, and everything going on below the surface that might not be apparent, a light in the darkness rather than what is clearly seen in the brightness of the day. I'm a Cancer moon, the sign that is actually ruled by the moon, so I'm much more emotional than my Taurus sun will allow most people to see. I'm good with that. <laughs> so let's talk about the correspondences now that I've talked your ears off about history and mythology. We have the basic phases of the moon that practitioners differentiate from. They are the new moon, the waxing moon, the full moon, and the waning moon, and the dark moon. I'm adding the dark moon in here, although some practitioners equate it with the new moon. Whether you do or don't is up to you. If you observe them separately, then the dark moon is the complete absence of the moon in the sky, and the new moon is the first sliver of moon that follows. Otherwise, the new moon and dark moon are both considered the same phase when the moon is absent or not visible at all. Was that confusing enough for you? <laughs> I've heard enough witches say they follow each school of thought to decide it's important to explain them both here. And for the sake of staying out of the argument, I'm not saying which one I follow. <laughs> so the new and or dark moon is considered the best time for magic that is associated with darkness, planting seeds or new beginnings, protection, destruction, renewal, death and rebirth, and spirit work and work on the self that involves exploring our shadow selves, our darkest recesses, and coming to an understanding of our angers and passions. It is also a good time to honor deities such as Hecate, Curidwen, and the Morrigan, although the latter two can also be honored during the waning moon, as well as any time really. It is a famously held time for Hecate's supper or diapnon, and an excellent time to clean and tidy the home, cleanse and purify, and even shore up your protections and wards. The waxing moon, which goes from after the new moon through the first quarter, half moon, and up until the full moon, is considered the best time for attraction and growth magic. Attracting good fortune, luck, love, or money, growing a skill, increasing all kinds of things including health, wealth, courage, creativity, inspiration, knowledge and wisdom, your magic in general, strength, and the honoring of lunar maiden deities. 
When we reach the full moon, it's a celebration of the fullest power, greatest strength, and pure magic. It is considered the best time for a full moon ritual or celebration, honoring any lunar deity that you work with, especially mother, warrior, or fertility goddesses, and workings associated with divination, psychic powers, magical ability, abundance, fertility, accomplishment, empowerment, creativity, love, power, protection, transformation, romance, illumination, and manifesting goals. And finally, when the moon is in its waning phase, which is after the full moon up into the new slash dark moon, we work to decrease and banish. Workings that are recommended under the waning moon include banishing, binding, bringing things to an end or withering away of things, loss, doing away with or breaking through obstacles, other world or underworld workings, spirit work, breaking hexes, reversals, release, and transformation. It's also a good time to honor crone deities or spirits that help with removing what's not wanted or overcoming obstacles. These are things to keep in mind when working magic, but it's not always possible to wait for the right moon phase for a working that needs to be done right away. They can enhance your working, but the wrong moon phase won't block a spell that's done out of necessity. Not to mention, there is a, a whole other set of lesser-known correspondences for the moon depending upon what month you are in. So let's start with February, since that is the month we are in right now. The February moon is great for astral realm, banishing, beginnings, empowerment, fertility, and purification. March is good for fertility, innocence, prosperity, spirituality, and success. April, my birthday month, is good for beginnings, fertility, growth, and spirituality. May is great for divination, enchantment, fertility, love, and well-being. Uh, I also want to throw in sex magic because that's when Beltane happens, so yeah. Uh, June is great for abundance, love, marriage, prosperity, and relationships. For July, we have dream work, light, magic, purpose, and strength. The August moon brings abundance, magic, animal magic, prophecy, prosperity, and wisdom. September is great for confidence, the home, manifestation, and protection. October is great for courage, healing, inspiration, memory slash memories, stability. November, the powers of cooperation, darkness, divination, healing, and hope. December, dedication, devotion, love, peace, prosperity, and strength. And then back to January again, beginnings, healing, money, protection, and strength. Now, uh, there is a 13th moon considered by some to be the blue moon. Usually the blue moon is the second full moon in one month. For the 13th moon, the powers are goals, the home, and truth. And yet, there are more correspondences based on what zodiac sign the moon is transitioning through at any given time. And yes, my friends, I have them. I have them. They are Aries. Good for starting things. Things occur rapidly, but quickly pass. People tend to be argumentative and assertive. Taurus. Things begun now, last longest, tend to increase in value and become hard to change. It brings out an appreciation for beauty and sensory experience. 
Gemini. Things begun now are easily changed by outside influence. Time for shortcuts, communication, games, and fun. Cancer. Stimulates emotional rapport between people, supports growth and nurturing. It tends to uh, domestic concerns. Leo. Draws emphasis to the self, to central ideas or institutions away from connections with others and emotional needs. Virgo. Favors accomplishment of details and commands from higher up. Focus on health, hygiene, and daily schedules. Libra. Favors cooperation, compromise, social activities, balance, friendship, and partnership. And I should throw in justice there. Scorpio. Increases awareness of psychic power, precipitates psychic crisis, and ends connections thoroughly. People have a tendency to brood and become secretive. Sagittarius encourages confidence and flights of imagination. This is adventurous, philosophical, and athletic for a moon sign. Favors expansion and growth. Capricorn develops strong structure. Focus on tradition, responsibility, and obligations. It's a good time to set boundaries and rules. Aquarius. This is rebellious energy. Time to break habits and make abrupt change. Personal freedom and individuality is the focus. And finally, Pisces, where we actually are now. The focus is on dreaming, nostalgia, intuition, and psychic impressions. A good time for spiritual or philanthropic activities. So no matter what you're working with, chances are there is a correspondence because all things are linked or related in one way or another in this universe. The day of the weeks even have associations, as I will be covering in my new series, as does the time of day, like dawn, midday, dusk, and midnight. Just keep in mind that these magical things can help you focus your magic and give it a little bit more potency by allowing you to borrow from the universal energy that is all around you. But your spells do not rely on them to work. They rely on you and your own personal power. So before I leave you, I just want to read a quick verse, or rather just the first stanza of a poem by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe called To Luna. I've got this uh, little picture I drew when I wrote down this poem. This page is, this is a page from my uh, personal grimoire. So I drew this and then I wrote down the first stanza because it was really meaningful to me. So I'm going to share it. To Luna, sister of the earliest light type of loveliness in sorrow, silver mists thy radiance borrow, even as they cross thy sight. When thou comest to the sky, in their dusky hollows waken, spirits that are sad, forsaken, birds that shun the day, and I. Okay, that is all that I have for you today. Be well and have an amazing weekend. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A is for Agrimony, coffee-stained notes on witchcraft. If you like what you've been hearing, please drop me a review wherever you listen. If you want some more content, please go to www.aisforagrimony.com, where you can find my blog, episode archive, spells and rituals, and soon to come, the coven shop. You can also follow me on Instagram at a underscore is underscore for underscore agrimony. That's an underscore in between every word. Or like my Facebook page, Facebook.com slash A is for agrimony. Want to contact me? Shoot an email to reachmargo at a is for agrimony.com. 
And if you're interested in some exclusive bonus content, you can join me over on Patreon at patreon.com slash A is for Agrimony, where I share early release, unedited video format episodes, weekly collective card readings, monthly spells, and much more. You're also welcome to send me some snail mail, if you're that kind of person, to P.O. Box 397, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, zip code 08003. I'd love a good surprise. (laughs) Or not. I don't know. Anyway, thank you for listening. Be well and have an amazing weekend. just got back from vacation and on Saturday and uh it was really nice I have to admit it was super nice I wasn't like super duper amped about the whole family vacation to Disney thing but it was fun the weather was beautiful and I mean incredible um I spotted an alligator Uh, I always, every time I'm in Florida, I look at every single body of water and scan it for alligators because I think that they're everywhere. I'm terrified of them. And I did that the entire week and didn't see a single thing. And then finally, when we were in the airport, um, if you've been to the Orlando airport, then you know that there's this whole thing where there's one side of the airport that is the check-in and the TSA and all that. And then you have to get onto a little train that takes you to a completely different building, which is where your um, gates are. So on that little train, on our way home, exhausted, staring out the window, I see this big, massive alligator head sticking out of the water and the train went by over it. And I was like, there it is, I knew it. It was pretty exciting, especially since I had just gotten my spices stolen from me at the TSA. Apparently, um, if you buy spices, like, you know, at the supermarket, Um, I get excited when I see spices in new places that they don't sell anywhere near where I live. So I got this like sassy Q barbecue rub that I was really excited about. Um, but my checked luggage was starting to get heavy to the point where I was afraid that it would be overweight. So I just threw the spices in my check-in bag. Actually, I threw it in, in my, uh, carry-on. Actually, I threw it in my husband's carry-on because mine, all my stuff was just getting too heavy, but it's a sealed bottle of spices. I mean, I had a box with a chocolate croissant and another box with, you know, what are those French pastries that I go crazy at macarons. I had all kinds of crap. You know, I wasn't worried about my sealed bottle of spices. Well, uh, it got flagged at the TSA. They did the thing where they rub the little piece of paper on it, stick the piece of paper in the machine. And then it flashed red. Apparently it flashed red because they, it was suspicious for like explosives. And I was like, well, I think the issue is at the Publix where I got this and not here. You need to go check that place out. Um, my Since it was in my husband's uh, carry-on, he had to get a full pat down and have in his entire carry-on searched. Uh, and then uh, another TSA agent came along and she said, uh, if you want to keep the spices, uh, we have to wait and get another supervisor over here to you know, check it out. 
And I said, how much longer is that going to take? And she said, maybe 20 minutes. And that's like, that, that doesn't mean 20 minutes. That means 45 at, at the least. So I was like, I will leave it here. So we left my spices behind. A TSA agent had some really good barbecue that night. And I was totally bummed out until we got on the train and I looked and I saw an alligator, which totally made my day. So yeah, no sassy barbecue for me, but alligator spottings. Pretty cool.